Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 10. Slow Advance, the Middle Ages. If China, the Middle East and India were inhibited by elites, with signs of early promise snuffed out, they at least never managed to regress quite as far and as dramatically as Western Europe did between the 5th and 10th centuries. Predation and parasitism destroyed civilization across Europe. For almost a thousand years, Europe was in a period we call the Dark Ages. We know so little about it because literate society more or less ceased to exist, apart from in a few pockets. Only very slowly did Europe, or at least some parts of Europe, begin to emerge out of this epoch of backwardness. One of the first places to start to show some signs of progress was northern Italy. It's not just Venice that started to show signs of progress in the early Middle Ages. A number of other city-states, notably Milan, Florence, Cremona, Pisa and Genoa, began to acquire some of the preconditions for progress. Independence, as the power of the emperor of the city-states waned. Dispersed power, as the communes adopted republican constitutions and interdependence as trade began to pick up. The manorial system that had started to take shape in the century before the collapse of Roman authority in Western Europe began to dissolve in northern Italy in the mid-12th century. This hints at the end of complete self-sufficiency, with greater monetary trade and therefore more specialisation and exchange, and therefore more wealth. Italy also started to see innovation with the invention, for example, of the mechanical clock and spectacles, as well as improvements in the design of ships, artillery and windmills. There was at the same time financial innovation with the advent of bills of exchange and banking, allowing greater trade and commerce. Medieval Italy experienced a marked increase in consumption and productive investment too. The Italian economic historian Carlo Capola recounts how, in the 11th century, the opening of a new mill was a major deal in the neighbourhood. A couple of centuries later, mills were commonplace. Markets and regional trade fairs also expanded across much of Europe. There was a massive expansion in textile processing before 1350, using imported cotton, silk and know-how from the East. Luca had water-powered silkworks by 1200. In Milan, there were an estimated six to 9,000 cotton workers by 1348, and even more in Florence and Genoa. It seems that Northern Italy in the 12th and 13th centuries was on the verge of the kind of textile revolution that England underwent 500 years later. But it never happened. The pull of the parasites was just too strong take-off stalled just as it had in China and elsewhere. During the 14th century, to an even greater extent than happened in Venice, power in the other Italian northern city-states was concentrated in the hands of a few. Consuls, who had administered many city-states in the commune's republican tradition, were replaced by Podesta magistrates, whose position often became hereditary. While Venice moved from an open to a closed system of oligarchy, most other Italian city-states ended up in the hands of a tyrant, or il signore. Perhaps what made Venice exceptional 
is that she was able to stave off the parasites a little more effectively and for a little longer than many of the other city-states around her. The signore elites that emerged in most medieval Italian city-states found it easier to enrich themselves through taxation than via the difficult business of commerce. Tax revenues in city-states increased dramatically as the princelings milked the merchants. Annual expenditure in Siena, for example, rose from a modest 6,300 lira in 1226 to a crushing 347,000 lira by 1328. This was a massive addition to the burden that the signori imposed on merchants and the productive. In addition, forced loans were not uncommon. A wealthy merchant would find himself becoming the owner of a virtually worthless IOU in return for lending the civic authorities a large sum of ready cash. Taxes were then spent in ways that rewarded parasites. Interest payments on loans, so bondholders did well. Increased military spending, so mercenaries or condotti did well. In Venice, defence expenditure meant generous contracts awarded to vested interests, not especially good at converting financial strength into naval muscle. The emergence of parasitic signori allowed a tiny elite to accumulate capital in the Italian city-states. By 1427, for example, the richest 10% in Florence had 68% of the wealth, and the poorest 60% a mere, 15, a mere 5%. The signori were not the only parasites in the communes. As in Venice, guilds restricted free exchange as well. They compelled producers to use established techniques in pending innovation. They set quality standards and prevented producers from supplying lower cost products to a potentially wider market. They made sure only certain kinds of apprenticeships could be given out for particular sorts of trade. Only certain apprentices could work in certain trades. They even had the right to seize the goods of any rival threatening to offer the customer a better deal. So, as happened in Venice, textile exports across northern Italy collapsed. A proto-industrialization that seems to have been gaining momentum in northern Italian city-states fizzled out. By the early 1500s, the number of woolen workshops in Florence fell from 270 to a mere 60. Its nascent industry lost market share to the Dutch and the English competitors, who were unhindered by such anti-competitive practices. Having been at the forefront of economic development and innovation in Europe between 1000 and 15,000, Italy stagnated. Per capita output in Italy had increased to around 2,000 US dollars, in 1990 prices, well over subsistence levels by the early 15th century. By the beginning of the 16th century, per capita output had fallen back and kept falling. By the beginning of the 17th century, Italy was poorer than she had been a century and a half before. We must add northern Italy to that long list of places, including China under the Huan, the Ming and the Qing the Middle East under the Abbasids, and India under the Mughals, where even the most promising progress 
came to grief as a consequence of small parasitic elites. Historians of the Middle Ages seem to report finding a renaissance wherever they look. Some have claimed to have spotted a Carolingian renaissance in the 8th and 9th centuries. Others say they found one in the 10th century, while several medieval renaissances are alleged to have happened in the 12th century. Perhaps these discoveries tell us more about the tendency specialist historians have to overstate the significance of their period of history than they do about the past. During the Middle Ages, some progress took place. There were improvements in farming with the adoption of heavier wheeled ploughs and the use of crop rotation. Milling technology improved with more water wheels and new design for windmills. But the Middle Ages need to be put into perspective. Between 1000 and 1500 AD, per capita output in the West rose from US dollars 426 to US dollars 754 in today's money, or by 77% stretched out over a period of 500 years. This was grindingly, painfully slow. We've experienced more economic expansion in the past three decades than there was during half a millennium of the Middle Ages. Indeed, growth in the Middle Ages wasn't just slow from a modern perspective, but by the standards of the Roman Republic. Per capita output in Italy doubled over a period of 300 years between 300 BC and AD 14 more than the increase in output over 500 years during Europe's Middle Ages. By 1500 AD, Europe might have progressed in relation to other parts of the world, but it was by no means clear that she was ahead, certainly not militarily. She endured a series of crushing military defeats. At Wildstadt in 1241, at Nicopolis, in 1396, and the Siege of Vienna in 1529, following which the Balkans were lost to the Ottomans. Ian L. Jones, the famous Australian scholar, wrote about the European miracle. But before the 16th century, if not the 19th for many, it was an extraordinarily slow-moving miracle. In fact, progress was so slow during the Middle Ages that after 500 years of successive renaissances, Europe's per capita output was still below what it had been in Italy in the first century AD. Europe had not made enough progress between the 10th and 14th centuries to escape Malthusian constraints. The Black Death in the mid-14th century was a brutal manifestation of this fact. From 1348 to the 1650s, a series of catastrophic plagues reduced Europe's population periodically by between a quarter and a third. War and famine, these great Malthusian constraints, played their part. In 1500, Europe's population of 60 to 70 million was lower than its estimated 80 million in 1300. For all the progress in the Middle Ages, there was no miraculous escape from age-old Malthusian constraints. But despite this, Europe in the Middle Ages was one of the few places on the planet where there had been any intensive economic growth over, over the preceding two millennia. Why was it 
Europe made progress, albeit painfully slow progress. Because she was slowly but steadily beginning to escape the grip of the parasitic elites. If you study a map of Europe in 1500, you'll see it consisted of a mosaic of states and statelets. In contrast to China or the empires of the Mughals, the Abbasids or the Ottomans, Europe was never a unified political whole. There existed no uniform authority in Europe which could effectively halt this or that commercial development, writes Paul Kennedy. No central government whose changes in priorities could cause the rise and fall of a particular industry. No systematic and universal plundering of businessmen and entrepreneurs by tax gatherers which had so retarded the economy of Mughal India. The closest thing to any kind of pan-European authority, the papacy, was weak. As we've seen, Venice could simply ignore the papal ban on overseas trading with Muslims in a way that Chinese traders, for example, simply couldn't. Without a single political authority imposing uniform policy, there could be, to use modern management speak, systems competition, like there was in ancient Greece. If one prince taxed trade too highly or imposed too many obligations on merchants, they could move. If one king repudiated his debts, he'd find it hard to get a loan again. Good ideas and innovation could spread. Semi-autonomous cities in the Middle Ages were a distinctively European phenomenon. There were no equivalents to Dutch burghers or Italian communes in Japan, India or China, beyond the jurisdiction of the emperor or the local warlord. Harvard economist and historian David Landers, author of The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, recounts the story of how the Count of Flanders in the 12th century marched into Bruges to reclaim a runaway serf. The townsfolk drove him and his henchmen out. Fragmentation did not prevent parasitism, but it was a restraining influence. During the Middle Ages, it's possible to see very gradually the slow emergence of a market economy, great respect for property rights, and the restraining influence of the law. There was a gradual widening of the market that promoted specialisation and the division of labour, according to Landers. And it meant that the world of Adam Smith was already taking shape 500 years before his time. Painfully slowly, the hold of the parasites seemed to be waning. Why has their hold proved so strong and resilient? Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.